Hey, welcome back. We are busy looking at the trustworthiness of the Bible. And last week we discussed the incredibly high view that Jesus had of the scriptures. In fact, we saw that Jesus endorsed everything that we'd previously seen that the scriptures claim about themselves. Jesus accepted those claims. Then we looked at how the apostles, who were the founders of the church, how they also fully accepted the scripture to be God's infallible word. And today we turn our attention to the actual reliability of the manuscripts themselves and some discussions that flow from that. So the New Testament, for example, was written a couple of thousand years ago now. And we're asking the question, how do we know that we can trust the copies that we still have today? And this is under the heading in your workbook, the manuscript evidence. Well, let me just start by stating this fact. The New Testament documents are the most historically authenticated ancient documents on the planet. So the process of verifying historical documents is an interesting one. We obviously don't have the autographs. Now, autograph means the original writing, like, for example, the actual letters that Paul wrote. We don't have the autographs anymore of any of the biblical writings. What we do have, however, is copies of the originals or the autographs. Or perhaps it could also be said we have copies of copies of the originals. And obviously when copies of copies of a document are made, errors can creep in. You know that broken telephone thing that you used to play as a kid. And so this is in your workbook. What New Testament textual criticism does is it seeks to establish the authenticity of the copies that we do have. And how does it do that? By comparing them with one another in order to get as close to the original as possible. So we compare the many versions that we have, the many copies that we have, we compare them with each other. When textual critics do their work, they look at three main factors when deciding whether or not an original writing has been preserved accurately. So three factors. First factor for textual criticism is this, the importance of the text. So the more important a document, the more care would be taken through the centuries by the scribes who copied it. Now, there is no more important document on the planet than the scriptures. And those people who were tasked with copying these books were doing so with a religious zeal that created an incredible level of precision and carefulness. In fact, the ancient Jewish scribes are recognized as being the most precise and careful of all ancient copyists. According to Jewish tradition, the Torah is so sacred that even if a single error was made on a single letter, that rendered the entire scroll unusable, which took a scribe one year to produce. So if there was one error in it, they tossed it out and he had to start again. Also, a single copy would be used for hundreds of years. Let's re, uh, read Greg Gilbert on this. Books in general were far more valuable to ancient people than they are to us today, and they therefore probably kept better care of them than we do. 
Even now, when we're able to print books every year by the millions, you can walk into just about any used bookstore and find books that are one or two or even 300 years old. People make their books last. And that was even more the case in ancient times when literally weeks of labor would go into copying a book. Scholars have learned from looking in old libraries that people regularly use books for 100 to 150 years before making a new copy and discarding the old. We see one fascinating example of this practice in what we call the Codex Vaticanus. That's a copy of the New Testament that was originally made in the 4th century but that scribes re-inked in the 10th century so that it could continue to be used. Do you see what that means? Codex Vaticanus was still in use 600 years after it was originally made. Here's the point. When books were regularly kept in use for literally hundreds of years, a gap of 45 to 75 years between the original New Testament documents and our earliest extant copies, the copies that we still have today, is just not that long. In fact, it's more than a little likely that the originals, penned by the authors themselves, would have been preserved and used to make countless new copies over the decades or even centuries before they were lost. Therefore, the claim that all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of the originals is far overwrought. Indeed, it is very well within the realm of possibility that we have in our own museums today copies of the originals. Full stop. So that's the first factor in predicting the reliability of a manuscript, the importance of the document. The second factor for textual criticism is this, the number of the manuscripts. The greater the number of manuscript copies that you have, the more you are able to compare them with one another to eliminate copying errors. And so the more copies you have, the closer you can get to the original. So, for example, if I find two copies of an ancient document, and they were found in different places, these copies, and when I compare them, I find that one of them has an additional sentence. How can I tell which one is correct? Well, I can't. But what if I had 10 copies of that document and all those copies were found in different places and I find that nine of them are the same, but one of them has an additional sentence. How do I know which are correct? Well, the probability is very high that that added sentence in that single copy is not original, but it was added by the copyist for some reason, that the nine that do agree are the correct original. Well, thankfully, and this is in your workbook, we have an astonishingly large number of ancient manuscripts and the uniformity amongst this multitude of texts is of an astronomically high level. Let me illustrate this to you. I remember in Latin, which I did in matric, we studied the Annals of Tacitus, the Poems of Catullus and Virgil's Aeneid. And while we were studying those things, no one ever questioned the accuracy of those documents, whether we could trust the copies that we have. So how many copies do we have of those documents? Well, for Tacitus, we only have one 
extant manuscript dating from anywhere near the original. For Catullus it's a little better. We have three manuscript uh, copies which can now be compared with one another. And for Virgil, it's a lot better. We have a few hundred copies, and that gives us a far greater clarity into what Virgil himself would have originally written. So how does the New Testament compare? Well, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the original Greek. We have a further 8,000 ancient manuscripts in Latin, and we've got a further 1,000 manuscripts of like early versions in um, languages like Syriac. So from a manuscript perspective, the evidence of the reliability of the Bible that we have is unprecedentedly high. And the variance between all of those thousands and thousands of, of copies is so small, it's about the same on both ends of the spectrum. It's like how they differ from one another. It's, it's like comparing reading the ESV Bible with the NIV Bible. That's two of our modern English translations. I mean, that's as big as a difference as you'll get when you compare all of those 13,000 manuscripts. In other words, it is phenomenal how these 13,000 manuscripts are all virtually identical. Okay, so that was the second factor for textual criticism is how many manuscripts you have so that you can compare them with each other. Then the third factor for textual criticism is the age of the manuscripts. Now, when we say the age of the manuscripts, just be careful to understand what we mean by this, because this has a particular meaning. What we mean by age is when you have an ancient manuscript in your hands today, which is itself, of course, a copy of something that was originally written at some time. You then have to ask yourself, how close to the time of the original document was this manuscript produced? So the shorter the interval between the original, the autograph, and the copy that you have in your hand, the shorter the interval, the less errors there will be. Because fewer copies of copies of copies of copies would have intervened between the original and the one that you're holding. Okay, so you want to get as close to the original as possible. And again here, the earliest extant manuscripts of the New Testament, that means the, the copies that we still have in our hands today, those copies were written much closer to the date of the original writing than any extant copies of any other pieces of ancient literature. For example, the oldest known manuscripts for any of the Greek classical writers were copied a thousand years after the original. In the case of the Latin writers like Virgil, the gap comes down to about 300 years. So the copies that we have were written 300 years after the original. So what about the New Testament? Well, we have some virtually complete New Testaments made up of extensive fragments of manuscripts dating within just 100 years of the originals. Let's take another example, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. So in Caesar's Gallic Wars, um, Caesar describes the battles and the intrigues that took place in the nine years that he spent fighting the Gauls. So Caesar's Gallic Wars, 
which is unquestioned in its authenticity and accuracy, was originally written in the first century BC and has come down to us today in about 10 existing manuscripts, unlike the 13,000 of the New Testament. And the oldest manuscript that we have dates about a thousand years after the original was written, unlike 100 years or less in the case of many parts of the New Testament. Now all this is why scholars have made statements like this. This is J. Harold Greenlee. Since scholars accept as generally trustworthy the writings of the ancient classics, even though the earliest manuscripts were written so long after the original writings, and the number of extant manuscripts in many instances is so small, it is clear that the reliability of the text of the New Testament is likewise assured. Then Greg Gilbert says, The charge that we cannot know what the original said is patently and utterly false. The gap between the originals and our earliest extant copies of them is, in the grand scheme of things, not that long at all. And far from diminishing our ability to identify what the original said, the vast number of the existing copies actually allows us to reason out deductively to a very high degree of historical uh, confidence what John, Luke, Paul and the other writers of the New Testament actually wrote. And then D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo say this in their introduction to the New Testament. The overwhelming majority of the text of the Greek New Testament is firmly established. Where uncertainties remain, it is important to recognize that in no case is any doctrinal matter at issue. Okay, so that's the manuscript evidence. What are some other ways that we know that the Bible is trustworthy? Well, the next one we're going to talk about is archaeology. Archaeology has helped us confirm the histories of both the Old and the New Testaments. So archaeologists have discovered many tombstones and other carved stoneworks which have been invaluable in corroborating the histories of the Bible. So this is a whole study in itself, but... I'm going to give you one example from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament just to give you a taste of this. So from the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 20 verse 1, Isaiah recorded the following historical event. He says this, In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, certain things then happened. But up until the 19th century, this passage was a point of controversy among critics of the Bible because there was no evidence of an Assyrian king named Sargon. Then, in 1843, a French archaeologist named Paul-Emile Botter discovered the palace of Sargon II at a place called Khorsabad, which is about 14 miles north of ancient Nineveh. So Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And then 80 years later, in 1963, fragments of an Assyrian monument were found in Ashdod containing a commemoration of Sargon's defeat of the city. Remember now, that was the city that Isaiah had said that Sargon had conquered. In addition, it said that Sargon had not personally gone on the invasion, but rather that it had been led by Tartan 
which was the title of his commander-in-chief. So it took two and a half thousand years, but in the end, Isaiah was shown to be historically accurate by archaeological discoveries. Then an example from the New Testament. Early on in Luke's gospel, he placed the timing of John the Baptist's ministry using six historical markers. Now just look how detailed Luke is in his placing of the commencement of John's ministry. Luke says this, Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, it was when all of that happened that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, there were always doubts over the existence of Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And people said, you see, man, there was no such person as Lysanias. We've never found anything about him, and so you can't trust the Bible. But in 1737, Dr. Richard Pocock discovered a stone dated from the time of the Augusti, which was Luke's era, he found this in a church in Damascus with an inscription on it referring to Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. So if you want lots more on this, these kinds of archaeological corroborations, they've just released the ESV Archaeology Study Bible, which looks awesome. I've actually ordered a copy for myself off Amazon and it's in the mail and I can't wait for it to arrive. Because in the study Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it references archaeological evidence for hundreds of things in the Bible. Go grab yourself a copy if this is a topic which interests you. Okay, so archaeology has been helpful. Then another way we know we can trust the Bible, and this is one of my favorite topics in the whole world, it's this. Fulfilled prophecy is another dramatic confirmation that the Bible is the Word of God. I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, I was about 23 years old, and I was astounded to hear that there were prophecies in the Old Testament which had already been fulfilled. And if I had just opened up this book that had always been on my bookshelf, I could go and read those prophecies for myself. Uh, and I was so taken with that because I had enough sense to know that only God knows the future. And that if the Bible could be seen to have successfully predicted the future, I mean, that had massive implications for how I viewed the Bible. And it was only years later that I read in the book of Isaiah how God firmly distinguished himself from the idol gods of the nations by telling Israel that he can and does predict the future. That God himself has said that this is a way we can know that these words are his and not men's or another God's. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He is saying, I am the only one who can predict the future, and therefore you know that I am the only God. 
Similarly, Jesus said that his own prediction of his death and resurrection would testify to the truthfulness of his claims to be the Messiah. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. It is truly, as the Apostle James said at the Jerusalem Council, known to God from eternity are all his works. Did you know that at the time that each of the books of the Bible were written, on average, 27% of what was written was prophetic? In other words, over a quarter of what these guys were writing was a prediction of the future. And of course, now as we read the scriptures, looking back, there have been hundreds of fulfillments of these prophecies. And this proves that it is God's word. God knows the future. Only because God has already ordained all that will come to pass. For example, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that there would arise a pagan leader named Cyrus. He even predicted his name and that Cyrus would return the exiles of Judah back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now that was fulfilled a hundred years later. I mean, that is remarkable. How would you like to predict who's going to be the president of China in a hundred years time? It's impossible. There is only one explanation. God himself, who has ordained the future, was speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Many of the prophecies of the Old Testament were in fact fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to list a whole bunch of them for you here because it is amazing to see how the prophecies of the Old Testament actually all focus their attention on the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Genesis chapter 49, um, Moses predicts that the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, will be born in the line of Abraham. And then not just Abraham, but through Abraham's son Isaac, not Ishmael, and then through um, Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau, then through Jacob's son Judah, right? Not the 11 other sons. And then eventually in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet said that the Messiah would then be born through the line of David, uh, which Jesus was. He was born into the family of David. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, this was 740 years before the birth of Jesus. He predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And then in chapter 9, he said that the Messiah would be a male born child. He would be a male child. In Psalm chapter 2, this was a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. The Bible predicted that this son would be the son of God not just the son of man. Micah the prophet, this is 680 years before the birth of Jesus, he said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which Jesus was. Hosea, 750 years before the birth of Jesus, said that he would spend time in Egypt and then he would return to Israel. Jeremiah, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, said that many children would be killed as a result of the birth of the Savior. Rachel weeping for her children. Isaiah chapter 9, the Messiah would be raised in Nazareth of Galilee, where his ministry would begin. Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3 actually predicted the same thing, that 
the, the way of the Messiah would be prepared before him by a messenger preaching in the wilderness. Of course, that was fulfilled by the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, so Malachi 400 years before the birth of Jesus, he predicted that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem and suddenly come into the temple in a, in a shocking way, which is exactly what happened. John chapter 7, Jesus secretly entered Jerusalem and suddenly in the middle of the feast, he went up to the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews marveled, saying, how did this man get such learning when he has never been taught? Zechariah chapter 9, 520 years before the birth of the Messiah, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Isaiah said, this is Isaiah chapter 9 and 52 and 53, that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. And his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would live a sinless life, and yet he would be despised and rejected by men. He would be hated without a cause, Psalm 69, Isaiah 49. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41. His disciples would forsake him, Zechariah chapter 13. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that price would be given for a potter's field, Zechariah chapter 11. He would be struck and spat on his beard would be plucked out and he would be beaten beyond recognition and yet he would remain silent he would take all of this as a lamb before its shearers is silent gall and vinegar would be offered to him psalm 69 he would be pierced for our transgressions Isaiah 53 and Zechariah chapter 12. He would be crushed for our iniquities and he would suffer for the sins of others. Psalm 69 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 53. He would be put to death, dying as a substitute for mankind, purchasing peace with God for us. And then he would rise from the dead. Zechariah chapter 12 said that his body would be pierced. It was with a spear. Psalm 22, this was a thousand years written by David before the, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. David said that the hands and feet of the Messiah would be pierced. David predicted that long before crucifixion had even been invented. Uh, David said that the Messiah would thirst. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would cast lots for his robe. Psalm 22, despite all of this brutality, none of his bones would be broken. Normally in crucifixion, after the criminals had suffered sufficiently and the sun was now going down, the Romans would come and they would break the legs of the victims so that they could no longer hold themselves up. And then they would, their um, suffocation and their death would, would be hastened. But in Jesus' case, after the Romans had broken the legs of the two criminals on either side of him, when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his, his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12, the Messiah would die together with criminals around him. He would be numbered with transgressions, but he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, and Jesus would was. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Psalm 16 verse 10, this was a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. David said that the body of the Messiah would not decay in the grave, but that he would rise from the dead physically. I get overwhelmed by all of these prophecies, knowing that all of this brutality was laid upon my Savior for me, so that I could be forgiven of my sin. 
And all of it predicted a thousand years before it even happened. Oh, the wisdom and the wonder of God. So fulfilled prophecy is a tremendous confirmation of the inspiration of the scriptures. And, you know, you would think when you look at all this, that this would be enough to convince the whole world to believe that the Bible is true and the gospel that it preaches is true. But not so. And we've got to ask ourselves, why is that? Why don't people believe when the evidence is so compelling? Because there is still the need for the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Despite all of this evidence, we can only come to a personal conviction of the Bible's inspiration. That it's, it's God's words to us. We can only come to that conviction through an inward work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus put it this way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said no one can come unless it has been granted by the Father. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. That's what happens when you are being drawn by the Holy Spirit. You read the scriptures and you hear the voice of your shepherd in them and you come to him. It's a work of the Spirit inside of you. This is how one of the great Puritans named William Perkins wrote it. This was 400 years ago. The church can bear witness to the canon of scripture, but it cannot inwardly persuade us of its authority. If that were so, the voice of the church would have greater force than the voice of God. And the whole state of man's salvation would be dependent on men. What could be more miserable than that? Wayne Gruden put it this way. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Those who are Christ's sheep hear the words of their great shepherd as they read the words of scripture. And they are convinced that these words are in fact the words of their Lord. So here we stand at the end of a tremendous discussion about what the Bible is, what it claims about itself. And then in the last couple of videos, whether or not we can trust those claims. And in our next three sessions, I'm going to address now the very practical question of how I think you should read your Bible. But I don't want to leave the discussions we've been having without making an important point about all of this. Why do I believe that everything we've done together so far in this series is so important? Listen to the words of John as he closed his gospel. Okay, this is why he thought what he had written was important. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Could I ask you to please just be patient with me as I ask you, are you saved? You as an individual, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, are you sure that you would go to heaven? 
Have you repented of your sins? Have you put your faith entirely in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness? And if in all honesty you are not yet saved, firstly, I want to commend you for participating in this whole course, for making it as far as you have. But let me be candid with you. The whole point of this entire discussion for you is to help you come to terms with who Jesus Christ is and to bring you to a point of decision about him. What are you going to do about Jesus? Jesus told the Pharisees this, and the Pharisees knew their Bibles backwards. He said this, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Please don't make that mistake. Don't just study about the Bible in this series. Come to Jesus, put your faith in him, turn away from your sins, and he will give you life. But if you are a Christian, I hope that this whole discussion has reminded you about how well founded your faith is and how precious your Bible is. And I hope that it's going to stimulate a fresh faith and commitment for Bible reading in your life. Now, that's why in the next video, we are going to transition our discussions to the topic of your personal Bible reading. And we'll spend the rest of the course on this topic because it's all well and good that the Bible is this amazing document, makes all these amazing claims. It's verifiable and all of that. But what about your personal reading of the Bible? And so in the very next video, the first thing we're going to discuss is why should I read my Bible? What will Bible reading do for you personally? And I look forward to that time together with you. Enjoy your group discussions if you're doing this in a small group. And I'll see you in the next video.